As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. to a weekend review episode of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, Arsenal and Manchester City both lost while Everton won, Wolves blanked Liverpool 3-0, Kaylor Navas and Nottingham Forest won, Chelsea's record spending had the desired result, a 0-0 draw with Fulham, cats and dogs officially living together, but we haven't gone full bizarre world just yet, which is to say that Leeds still lost, meaning that Jesse Marsh had to fall on the same sword that Marcelo Bielsa fell on not too long ago. Up next for Leeds... Marcelo Bielsa again, if the bookies get their way. Meanwhile, Karim Benzema failed to score for a second straight weekend, which means we're approaching a full-blown crisis at Real Madrid, who are now eight points behind Joe's boyhood club in the title race. There's a Milan derby, Seattle's very brief foray into the Club World Cup, and Elche getting their first win of the season, which means congrats of sorts to Cremonense and Serie A, our only (laughs) remaining winless team across Europe's top five leagues. Here with me to talk about all that and much, much more are two wonderful friends. Up first, a man who will soon only be accepting payment in the form of Popeye's gift cards. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Yes, there's no, no shortage of news today with Erling Haaland preparing to play in the championship. Jesse Marsh sacked by Leeds. And the biggest piece of news, which you referenced there, <laughs> I've just learned Popeye's is building a restaurant two miles from where I live. RIP my waistline. Well, see, here's the thing, though. You said that's walkable two miles. So is the plan to mm. walk the two miles, eat, and then walk back? Is that how you'll burn some of the calories? That's basically what we did in Brooklyn, Ryan and it I. Is. <laughs> Wake up in the morning, walk yep. to Popeye's, and then burn it off on the way back. Yes, and then Ryan and Joe would both obnoxiously go for runs and, and make us feel uh, slightly less fit. Graham, <laughs> is your hope that a massive amount of fried chicken and biscuits will help or harm your voice? What's the plan there? I mean, I feel like, actually, I was going to say help because I was thinking of like the gravy, but then I feel like biscuits is probably Mm -hmm. not the kind of food you want when you've got a sore throat. (laughs) So maybe have the biscuits first and then wash it down with uh, with a pint of gravy to to lacquer the, the throat. That should help the waistline as well. Uh, Ryan sure. Bailey uh, is traveling, will not be with us today. We'll be back for tomorrow's episode, uh, or at least the show that we're recording today that I think will air tomorrow. I'm not quite sure what the timeline's going to be. Uh, but view behind the curtain is that Graham 
for a moment thought he wouldn't be able to join us because he was having uh, some voice issues. Graham, mm. uh, I'm I'm glad you're here, but if you need to save that voice, uh, Joe and I can pick up the slack. This is the first time I've spoken at full volume for two days. Mm-hmm. Basically, what happened was I picked up a, a cold from my daughter. Kids are great for that yep. sort of thing, yep. you know. And then what happened on top of that was Sterling Albion had the worst refereeing performance I've seen for years <laughs> on Saturday <laughs> afternoon. And so I ended up screaming abuse at a referee for an hour and a half. And so that ah. just that just exacerbated the whole issue. So I think that's, that's why I didn't have a voice for, for 48 hours. I feel like... One of those may have been a slightly bigger part uh, than the other, but who knows? Uh, Hopefully we don't have you screaming too much in this episode. Rounding out the crew for this one, uh, a man who doesn't need any food to keep him alive because he's busy finding new and creative ways to cheat financial fair play rules. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. You know, I do what I can. Uh, Manchester Uh City has learned a good few things from me over the years. I've been an open book on sharing all of my different accounting uh, philosophies, and I think it's really helped City out in this uh, in this really impressive time where they're not going to win the title anyway and now might be going down an entire division at the same time. Also, mm. <laughs> shout out to Graham, who is here. Graham, we appreciate that. Um, another peek behind the curtain. Graham messaged specifically to me in the Slack today, and this is 100% true, not a lie at all, that because Chris Armas is about to be taking over Leeds United as interim <laughs> manager, he had to be here to talk about how much he loves Chris Armas, and that's all definitely true, every part of it. Of course, yeah. I actually had completely forgotten he was at Leeds United, and I feel like maybe Leeds have forgotten that he's yeah, still there if he kept having a job and Jesse Marsh has been sacked. Uh, Joe, thank you for that. Uh, we were going to dock you many points and issue you a fine. Ryan did want to relegate you to the TSS Championship Division, uh, but after careful consideration, we've decided to ever, ever so slightly slap you on the wrists and then send you on your way. I'm assuming that will also be Man City's punishment. Does that sound acceptable to you? That sounds great to me. The only the only issue I have with that is I know this isn't how it's supposed to be, but the TSS Championship Division sounds way cooler than just yes. the TSS Division. So well done to the EFL for the branding on that. Because, you know, it, it really does get me every time. I really think they could just go, like, you could go Premier, Championship, then League One, then Premier Division, which would, of course, be the fourth <laughs> division. You could just really keep it going and, and just confuse people as yeah. much as you possibly can. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time on the Man City uh, news because it broke this morning. But essentially, they cheated FFP, the allegations that they cheated <gasps> FFP for no. nine Years uh, from 2009 to 2018, uh, it is charges being brought by or allegations being brought by the Premier League, which means it cannot be appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. There is no uh, statute of limitations, uh, which was sort of part of why there wasn't as much punishment uh, when UEFA brought some charges against Man City previously. But who knows what will happen? What we do know is that Spurs beat Man City 1-0 this weekend. Harry Kane becomes Tottenham's all-time leading goal scorer, and it was quite the match to set that record. Really just like a a great moment for him, a great moment for Spurs fans, Graham. Uh, That was one of my favorite moments of the weekend, and that's coming from a Spurs neutral. Yeah, indeed, and we'd been building up to that moment for for quite a while, Harry Kane becoming Tottenham's all-time top scorer, passing the, the legendary... Jimmy Greaves. There, there's a great clip on Twitter of um, Rob Daly, who is a, a commentator. I'm actually familiar with him from other outlets besides Spurs' official TV channel. But on this, on this, uh, on this case, he's he's doing the Spurs TV channel, and it's him and Clive Allen doing the commentary. And it's just a great clip of kind of what it means to Spurs as a club to have 
someone like Harry Kane, who, yes, I know technically he comes through the Arsenal uh, Youth Academy, and I did mischievously tweet yesterday as Harry Kane, the best player to have ever come through the Arsenal Youth Academy, Oof. and I did get uh, some some uh-huh. bites of, of, of that <laughs> of that reel. Yeah, because uh, you forgot about Florin Balogun, Graham. That's why you got some real bites Oh, of bites course, there. yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's That's second. Just... He will surpass Harry Kane right. in time. And give it time, Joe. Give it time. Fine. But, um... Yeah, to have Harry Kane be, you know, one of their own, they, they sing about him being one of their own, 267 goals, 200 Premier League goals now, and I think Wayne Rooney's on 206 or 208, so he's going to surpass that, Alan Shearer on 260. I actually think Harry Kane, in terms of his skill set and his ability, he's already the greatest Premier League striker yeah. of all time. I would put him above, certainly Shearer, I'm not trying to, obviously Shearer was an absolute goal machine, but in terms of his all-round game, Harry Kane is superior to Alan Shearer, in my opinion. And I, I know Wayne Rooney was a brilliant all-round player as well, but I didn't think... I, I, with Rooney, and Taylor, maybe you disagree with this, I never really knew what Rooney's position was. I didn't know yep. whether he was a 9 or a 10, or sometimes he played in central midfield, and sometimes when they had Ronaldo and Berbatov and all those guys, he was out wide as well. Harry Kane is just an exceptional goal scorer and creator. He does everything. He's good in the air. He's got a complete skill set. So, yeah, as I say, I think he's already the greatest Premier League striker of all time, and he's coming for that all-time record still uh, currently held by Alan Shearer. So he narrowly uh, edges out Timo Werner for you, does he? Narrowly, yeah. (laughs) Only just. just just. Uh, Credit to Harry Kane for that goal and for uh, getting Tottenham that win. Credit also for me uh, to Peter Drury. Thumbs up to him for a wonderful call. He had some great lines celebrating that one. Uh, He sits on Tottenham's loftiest perch was pretty great. He has dared and he has done is another great one. Uh, But I... But I did love, he lets the moment breathe. You get the crowd noise, you get the atmosphere. But there's also, in my mind, a moment where he is making sure that no offside is going to happen before he sort of, uh, like, he, basically he's keeping his powder dry. Doesn't want to use all of his good lines that he has prepared until he is sure that VAR won't be taking that goal away. Then he delivered his yeah. monologue. But that was a, a pretty great moment for him. I hadn't considered how VAR yep. can throw a wrench yep. in that whole process because yep. I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure Peter Drury doesn't script things, but I am also sure that he thinks of lines before the game where, where if it happens, particularly with something like Harry Kane, where you know it's going to happen at some point, he's got lines in, in, in mind, and yep. so if he, he uses them all and then it's disallowed by VAR, yeah, that's a, that's a nightmare scenario. So I hadn't I hadn't considered that. Yeah, if it had been chalked off, would he have to like he sits on Tottenham's highest pedestal, like he's got to change. <laughs> loftiest perch just a little bit to make it work again. Uh, Luckily, he did not have to do that. Uh, And we should spend some more time talking about Spurs, who, Graham, I think looked like a strong team, looked like an Antonio Conte team of sorts, of sorts. Yeah, so thumbs up. I I thought they did look like an Antonio Conte team pretty much all all the way through. And we haven't been able to to say that, excuse me, um, too many times this season. So it was compact in the right moments. It was energetic in the right moments. The biggest difference for me between this performance and some of the the flat performances we've seen this season from Spurs was the way they were able to play through the midfield. It was the most attacking, certainly, that I've seen Hoiberg uh, for Spurs. He was he was making late runs and getting forward to join the atta- join the attack, and obviously it's him nipping in to win the ball with a high press on on um, Rico Lewis. I think it is that loses the ball as City play out from the back. So he was leading the press from midfield as well. And he does this for Denmark. We've seen this sort of thing from Hoiberg at international level, but I haven't really seen it for for Tottenham. So I think that was a big difference. Of course, City's high line made it easier for Spurs to get in behind them. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about the, the, the issues that City had in this game later on. But 
I just thought the midfield, it felt it felt much more like a Conte midfield. I think Spurs this season have been undermanned in the centre of the pitch at times. And even though it was still your, your midfield two in there, it didn't feel like that in this game because they had that box unit of Bentoncourt, Hoiberg, and then Son and Kulosevsky creating that, that box, as I say. And it was just so effective in closing City down, making sure they weren't able to play through them, but also in conducting attacks. And it just felt like, particularly in the second half, there was a period where every time Spurs were winning the ball back, they were one or two passes away from getting in behind City. And maybe that's down to City's flaws, but it was also a strong performance from Spurs. Graham, you mentioned City's high line there and, and Tottenham's ability to find opportunities on the break. That felt like a big issue for Man City in this game and something that Tottenham deserved credit for, for capitalizing on those moments, for creating transition opportunities. Harry Kane's goal is, is off of a good pressing sequence from Tottenham, and so they do deserve credit for that stuff. I just think, and Graham, I know you wrote this in the doc too, so I'm sure you have thoughts on this as well. I thought Pep's lineup was strange in this match. and I, I generally give... Pep the benefit of the doubt because I think he knows way more about soccer than I do. And I try to give managers the benefit of the doubt. But a lot of the conversation that even we've had about City this season has been about how they struggle to control games, right? How Erling Holland has changed at its core how this team plays, or at least has changed how the players around him have to play, right? They have to accommodate Erling Holland. They have to shift and fill different spaces because Holland doesn't really drop and do any of that stuff. What was weird to me about this lineup from Pep is that's been the problem from City. That has been a major issue of theirs this season. And Pep's solution is to put on another number nine who's not really going to drop in, who's not really going to to link and combine. Maybe Alvarez, Julian Alvarez is better at that stuff. I think he is than Erling Holland, but he's still another player that in Pep's mind you almost have to accommodate. So for him to play his possession-heavy control we're going to have the ball and move it around, and we're also going to win it right back after we lose it. Our rest defense is going to be good. Our counter-pressing is going to be good. For him to do that with not one but two true number nines in his team felt weird. It felt like, Graham, it kind of feels like it falls in your theory of Pep only doing extremes. He's like, well, no false nine anymore. Instead, we have Erling Holland. Well, actually, we didn't go far enough. Now we need to get Julian Alvarez on the field, and that's going to fix everything. And maybe it can, right? Maybe it will over the course of this season. I have my doubts. But thumbs down for me to... Really, City's stale performance, their approach, how open they were defensively at times. And, and really, they didn't out-create Tottenham in this match. They were fine in the attack, but not really anything special in this game. Just just generally thumbs down to City and some of the thought processes that went into mm. those choices. It, it was weird in terms of the formation and the shape and the, the approach, but also just from, and maybe this is slightly reductive, but also just from a a personnel point of view. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne is on the bench for, for, for this game, starts the game on, on the bench, and it wasn't until he comes on off the bench in the, in, in the second half that City really start to find some space in, in, in between the lines, and then obviously by that point they're leaving themselves pretty vulnerable to, to the counter because Spurs can sit deeper and protect what they have and then hit out on the break. But Gundogan on the bench as well, and so when you looked at the City team, it wasn't really clear what the midfield was because, as you say, Joe, we had Alvarez and Haaland as, as a front two. I would say that's more of, of, of an orthodox front two than I've ever seen Pep Guardiola play in his whole managerial career. I can't remember him ever really doing that before. And then you have uh, Grealish, Bernardo and Mares as well in the, in the same mid, midfield unit. 
with Rodri really kind of left on his own to hold things together in, in, in central midfield and he was dropping back into the back line as well because City were doing this, this um, I don't know if it was a weird thing but notable thing of, of dropping into a three when they were in possession you see that very clearly when sorry I should say a defensive back three when they, in possession and you see that clearly for the goal where Rico Lewis is pushed up into central midfield yeah. he doesn't really want the pass out from the back and then Spurs are right on him and, and, and they're pressing counter pressing really high or just pressing really high and it, it just was very difficult to figure out what the approach was from Pep until as I say later in the second half when he went a little bit more conventional and I thought that was the best period of the whole game for City It's also strange to me because Pep seems to me a manager who observes everything, observes what opposition teams are trying to do, especially from one game to the next, and then tries to either uh, find a way to kind of build his team such that they can avoid what that what that opposition opponent is trying to do, or sort of play into the strengths or the weaknesses presented. And in this one, uh, credit to Michael Cox for pointing it out, that uh, uh, Hoiberg, who Graham has already given credit to, uh, this is the quote, seems particularly effective at remaining in an opponent's blind spot and then pouncing. And he does that here he did this the last time these two teams play he's very good about sort of stepping in that right moment and I think that's a credit to the way this team was organized even without Antonio Conte on the bench because he's suspended Uh, but the other number that I thought was really interesting Spurs are 18th in total high turnovers but near the top of the table for pressing actions leading to goals which to me means they pick their spots really well so this to me was was an example of Spurs being really up for it and well prepared and then even like the Harry Kane kind of spinning off the ball as soon as it's won to find himself in a little bit of space to get that shot off it just felt like they were very up for it but also very aware of the little things that they were set to do to then cause city problems whereas man city it felt like didn't quite have the game plan overall yeah and and the numbers here really do work out for tottenham in this game they outcreated city they didn't really give up many good shots i think city had 15 shots in this game 64 percent possession but but less than a single expected goal and, and single game xg is something that has to be taken with huge numbers of grains of salt. But really, you look at the shots that City had, there were better periods that Graham mentioned towards the end of this match. But, I mean, really, a lot of the shots are from bad spots in this game from City. So Tottenham kind of checked all those boxes. Taylor, I love those stats that you brought there. Right, They will press. They will find those particular moments. They'll press sometimes out of a lower or a mid block. Um, but, but they really are trying to be careful in what moments they overextend themselves. And it worked out for them in this game. They outcreated. They frustrated City. Huge result for Tottenham as well. So thumbs up for really where this puts them in the table. They're fifth. They have a game. Uh, they have shoot, they have a game in hand. They've played one extra game than all of the other teams in the top four, except for Arsenal, and they played two extra games in Arsenal. So you know they're they're still not in a fantastic position, but they're on thirty nine points, one point behind Newcastle. So I mean, this was a big result for them to get even closer and really get buddy buddy with all those other teams in the Champions League race. So a big result for Spurs, thumbs up to them, thumbs down to Man City, and then thumbs down to Man City's finances as well. Uh, You mentioned Arsenal there. Let's take a quick break and come back to talk about Arsenal's weekend that was. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back, Joe. Uh, the other thing Man City were kind enough to do uh, this weekend in that loss was give Arsenal just a little bit of a breathing, a little bit of breathing room, a little bit of a break because Arsenal falling one 0 to Everton, not a result I expected, but at least Man City uh, didn't pile on the pressure. Yeah, I had down in my, in my notes thumbs uh, thumbs up to Manchester City from Arsenal's perspective because yeah. Arsenal really salvaging some aspects of their mental health this weekend. They lose to Everton <laughs> on Saturday and they think, oh man, City's about to close the gap. They're yeah. better than Tottenham. They've been playing better for stretches of this season. Tottenham have been Tottenham for a lot of this year and then Tottenham go out and do them a favor. So up to yeah. Arsenal in general, but not really for this performance. I think a lot of the focus for this game has been rightly on Everton and I, I think that's really what we're going to do for a decent chunk here as well. Sean Deitch doing Sean Deitch things. He comes he's in back. with... He's, he's back. Graham loves this so much. So I don't want to go on for too long here because Graham is way more excited about this than I am. But I, I did like Everton's defensive game plan in this game. We think of Sean Deitch, we think of a 4-4-2. We think of a, a lower block. And we didn't really see a 4-4-2 in this game. We saw a situational 4-4-2 defensively. But really, it was more of a, a 4-5-1, which gave them an extra number in midfield to really frustrate Arsenal and to block off Granit Xhaka and, and Odegaard as their two number eights in possession. So it was Ducore, and it was Onana, and it was Adrissa Gay in central midfield. And one of them could step forward alongside Dominic Calvert-Lewin to pressure the ball and to try to frustrate Arsenal a little bit higher up the field. But then even when one of those midfielders stepped, they still had that compact bank of four behind them. So I, it was sort of part 4-4-2, but it was really a 4-5-1 that then molded and adapted and shifted. They pressed some as a, as a unit, a lot of really just good defensive stuff from Everton. It wasn't revolutionary from Sondage. This isn't the first time we've ever seen a team approach a game like this. But I think they scouted Arsenal very, very well. They prepared themselves to match up as much as they could with Arsenal's fluidity, with Zinchenko tucking into midfield from left back. You still have the numbers in midfield if you're if you're Everton to match up against that. With Ben White staying a little bit deeper, you can have a midfielder step out of that block of five to go and press. I mean, a lot of these details have been clearly thought about by Sean Dyche and company. I don't think Everton are going to be world beaters now, but they did just take down the best team in the Premier League 
and Sean Deitch and the tactical game plan and the execution, of course, from the players. I mean, thumbs up to really all of those things for Everton in this game. Yeah, for a team that had just five days working under a new manager, there, there was a lot of really intelligent and a lot of detailed things in, in Everton's performance as well. So they knew when to close down, when to stand off and stay compact. Joe, you detailed a lot of their, their, their approach well there. And, and a lot of those things, it, it, that's usually the sort of thing that, that takes a manager months to achieve. But Daesh has seemingly managed to instill that instantly. I think the work ethic was was a was a big thing as well. And obviously... That's a little bit of an intangible thing, and I want to see whether that maintains, sustains over a longer period of time rather than just the the initial, the, the first match. But you know, the in the in the numbers, you you see that Everton covered more ground in this match than any other match this season. And as I say, of course, it's not unusual to have a bounce like that under a new manager. But nonetheless, it, it does say something about how, how Everton are just going to work much harder under Sean Dyche. And, and his first day of training, he had the players doing a, a beep test, mm-hmm. and there was some comically brilliant pictures of him laughing hysterically as some players are doubled over looking like they're they're going to spew so that was that was quite a, an introduction to, for the Everton players to, to their new manager and and all the in, in terms of the performance all the dice uh, hallmarks were there they, they played the ball into an attacking focal point in this case Calvert-Lewin as often as possible they got bodies up and around him they got the ball wide in transition they got crosses into the middle and, and Everton created a couple of really good opportunities that way and the midfield, I did kind of spotlight that the midfield, when we talked about Dyche, I think, two weeks ago in the big thing, that midfield really could work wonders for Sean Dyche. It's, it's a real Sean Dyche midfield in the way that the ground they cover, the ability to win second balls, and then one of the three having the ability to, to, to break forward, but it's never more than one of the three at any given time. And I just think when you look at the, the three that... Everton had in midfield, Onana, Decore, I know Gay doesn't really do it, but Awobi, if we're counting him as part of that midfield unit as well, all of them are capable of of carrying the ball forward and, and, and breaking forward. So it is it is a little bit of a Sean Dyche team already in terms of the fit. It, it feels like there's a lot of players that he can work with down to the fact that he has he has uh, already worked with some of them before yep. in Tarkovsky and Dwight McNeil. That's where the goal comes from. A Dwight McNeil corner, Tarkovsky header, <laughs> two players that Sean Dyche worked with at Burnley. So, and it, and it was quite funny after the match that Mikel Arteta was giving credit to the way that Everton played and he called them Burnley and didn't even catch himself. <laughs> he just said, yeah, Burnley played a great game today. You know, they deserve to win. So we are going to see a lot of of Burnley ball, we're going to see a lot of dice ball from this Everton team, but given where they were in the Premier League table, I think that's no bad thing, and, and this performance and result just kind of backed up my feeling that this is going to be a good fit for Everton. I really did wonder how good of a fit it was going to be. I think, Graham, you were on Sean Dyche should be the Everton manager. You were on that train, like, from the jump. Uh, and, and it was just odd to me that this is the same Everton team that had, you know, Carlo Ancelotti and Hamas Rodriguez and, and big names coming in. And I think there was that expectation that they would sort of move on to that next level. Uh, that obviously hasn't happened, and there are significant financial reasons for that. But for Deitch to come in, it is a philosophy change. It is probably a philosophy change for the supporters but at the same time it's a change that got them three points and has gotten them closer than they were uh, to getting out of the relegation zone so in that way it starts to tick a lot of boxes for me of Sean Deitch being the kind of no-nonsense manager there's already been all the coverage of him banning snoods and and hats uh, from training I'm I sorry him I'm wearing... sorry what is a snood because I saw that as well and I just I couldn't bear myself to look it up yeah. it just feels made up like I feel like I'm scarf. being pranked 
a scarf. It's like okay. a scarf, but that's like a like rounded so that you can just put it on and then it, it's sort of like uh, keeps your neck warm, but and, you don't have to tie it up or anything. And like everyone's that. just cool with us calling them snoots. Like we're all no one's thought that's a bit silly. For, for whatever reason, they were they were permitted in the Premier League for a long time. Samir Nasri and Carlos Tevez yep. used to wear them a lot, and now I think I think they're banned. But yeah, they're they're slightly a, a scarf tailor's like what one big long yeah. Thing of material, whereas a snood is a continuous loop. Yeah. loop, right? That's yeah. the difference. Yeah, you can't you can't be like tying your, your snood in the middle of trading. That I'm just would, saying. I'm poorly. just saying. Doctor Seuss has called and he wants his word back. That's I. <laughs> I I'm sorry. I can't. I do think it. the the person who actually did call and did want those things recalled was Roy Keane. I remember him being very displeased that players couldn't. They needed their next form. How soft are we getting? Uh, I don't know. I like it. I also like the idea that it wasn't just like. Uh, like beanies that Sean Dyche banned, but it was like the giant oversized hats that NFL players now wear. He wanted none of that in training. He's no nonsense. He himself <laughs> is going to wear short, uh, look like Umbro shorts uh, for training. I like that all of that from Sean Dyche. But I, it just, you could tell there isn't always, I think, science behind the new manager bounce. I don't know if it is always as accurate as people want to believe. But in this case, never has it felt more like a new manager came in and sort of inspired confidence. Uh, I, I heard an interview with him where he talked about, like, what, what was your big speech? What was your rallying cry? And it was basically reminding them that they're Premier League players and that they got here because they're very good. And maybe they haven't had that belief before, but they should have it now. And that does seem to be a hallmark of what he does. He gets sort of uh, performances out of players who have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder or have a point to prove. And that was this Everton team this weekend. The way they fought for everything, the way they battled. Uh, and then Amadou Onana, especially so important to Everton, so good, uh, should probably cost as much as Jude Bellingham will cost if he's sold in the summer. Hopefully not if you're an Everton fan. But just the, there was like belief there, there was fight there, there was challenging for everything. It was just an energetic performance that we haven't seen from Everton in a very long time. Graham, it's early days of February, but Sean Dyche, manager of the month already? Oh, of course, manager <laughs> of the year. I would say, I I, I just love everything about Sean Dyche, and, and like I, I love. I also noticed it seemed like he was wearing, he was wearing Umbro shorts yep. and Copa Mundials, and I just love Everton being like, hey, Sean, can you wear these? Um, can you wear these shorts? Because we're actually sponsored by Hummel. Like no. we have a deal in place. And he's like, nope, Umbro or nothing. <laughs> But then he had the suit on. He had the the, the tailored suit yeah. for the game. It was it was a conundrum. It was a game of contrasts. Uh, Joe, a- any thoughts on Arsenal's performance in this one? Uh, because it did not seem like they were as up for it as Everton were. No, I I thought they were mediocre, really at best in this game. I, it was an unremarkable performance from Arsenal. I do have thumbs down to maybe Arsenal becoming a little predictable. In, in this, I was reading Mark Carey had an article recapping and, and adding some data context to a lot of the events of the weekend, a lot of the, the Premier League stuff, and I, I thought it's really, really good. Go check out all of Mark's stuff for The Athletic. He's one of my favorite writers over there. And he had this stat in that article. He said, Arteta sending out the same team that started the previous fixture on 10 occasions this season which is more than any other Premier League side. And there's value in continuity, and I'm sure Mark would say that, I'm sure Arteta would say that, but I I do wonder, you know, Sondai just had nothing to do except sit around and and eat worms and watch Arsenal play soccer. I I do sort of wonder if maybe they're being figured out a little bit and and adding Trossard and and Jorginho in the transfer window is valuable, and I, I, I think I was saying that all throughout the January window that Arsenal needed more depth in those positions, but I, I wonder if it's going to be enough. And, and we're going to find out, really, if Arsenal have the variability within their first-choice players or if the transfer moves they made in January 
have enough little extra sauce to get them over the line. I don't know what this is going to look like for Arsenal, but this is sort of the first time this weekend is sort of the first time that I had that thought creep into my head when I when I read that from Mark of, oh, you know, maybe there is something here where teams know what Arsenal are about and, and they're starting to figure out how to stop them. What what I would say is this this was, I think, a pretty bad tactical matchup for Arsenal. So Arsenal are a team who like to funnel most of their play through through the middle, even down to the fullbacks coming inside. Obviously, Zinchenko has has done that expertly for them this season. But Everton are now a, a team that like to stay narrow out of possession. And there's actually a really good uh, coach's voice video bouncing around Twitter after this game and it was Sean Dyche the Sean Dyche masterclass I love I love those thumbnails that the co- the coach's voice used that get that get uh, tweeted every time one of the the managers on it get a, a big result and this was a Sean Dyche masterclass and he's talking about protecting the V so he wants to crunch the wide areas and double up on the attackers in the wide areas and he wants a narrow defensive four to protect the box and then you look at how Everton played against Arsenal in this game, and that's exactly what they were doing. And Arsenal have, are, as I say, are a team that want to force their play through the middle of the pitch, and that's where Everton were, were set up to, to to stop them. So I think I want to see another game where a team is able to stop Arsenal in the way that Everton w- were able to, because I, I just think maybe it's it was a bad tactical matchup for them. Um, but yeah, th- this was a poor performance by Arsenal, and, and I thought the changes they made in the second half were didn't do anything to alter the, the flow of the match. Odegaard was really ineffective, probably the worst performance of, from him this season. Thomas Partey was ineffective and both of them come off in the second half and then you have Jorginho and Vieira come on and I thought they were kind of bullied when, when they came on. I thought they were look, made to look quite lightweight. So all of a sudden a performance like this makes you question the depth that we were talking up that Arsenal had built up in January. I want to see another match before I, I make any solid conclusions, but certainly some things for Arteta to think about. So thumbs up to Sean Dyche and Everton, thumbs down to Arsenal. Uh, Graham, you mentioned Arsenal being disappointing. Speaking of disappointing, let's talk Liverpool for a moment, shall yeah. we? Uh, trounced by Wolves, 3-0. Not the best of defending, Graham. No, no, not at all. Thumbs down to all of the stuff that happened in their defence in, in, in this game. And thumbs down to there being any clear explanation for what is happening at Liverpool this season. That I, I'm kind of running out of ideas, and I think Jurgen Klopp is as well. This was another shocker from them. So the defending for the Dawson goal in particular was remarkably bad, where the Wolves player, I think it's Cunha, is just given so much time and space to get across in, into the middle from the edge of the box. Um, Kaita and Andy Robertson are both with it, are, are certainly close enough to, to, to get closer to, to Cunha, but neither do. They just kind of stand and watch him as the ball comes into the box and then Wolves react quickest to the, the bouncing ball inside the area and that kind of set the tone for, for the whole match. And Klopp has has, has talked about um, a, la- a lack of alertness and sharpness and, and, and that was the thing that really struck me from this game because we've spoken about a lack of intensity in terms of defensive actions and how Liverpool's numbers in that regard have fallen off a cliff this season. But just football intelligence-wise, it, it, Liverpool are not the same team this season. And there's this idea that Liverpool have just gotten old. And I think there might be something in that. But those two players that I mentioned, Robertson and Keita, they're 28 and 27. So what, what's their excuse? They, sh- they should still be able to play at the same intensity that they have been in the, in the last few seasons. So this was another horror show for Liverpool. Yep. I am running out of explanations for what's going on. 
It feels like a lot of little things, starting with a big thing being the injuries uh, in this game. Liverpool without Virgil van Dijk, Roberto Firmino, Luis Diaz, uh, Konate, Diogo Jota, and Artur. Artur probably the most important of all those absences. Virgil van Dijk probably the least. Kidding. Uh, But then with that comes a lack of reinforcement in January. I do feel like Jurgen Klopp has been dealt an unfair hand at this point. He doesn't get the reinforcements. He's still trying to play a similar style. He's adjusted it accordingly. I think he's trying to have a bit more possession with his team so that they can slow things down. It's it's less sort of physicality required because I do think there is fatigue uh, going on. But I just think there's a lot of little things leading up to Liverpool being pretty non-functional. Uh, the, the, the thing that I saw that was kind of eye-opening for me, you all may have seen this, but if you haven't, do you know who Liverpool's top scorer is since play resumed after the World Cup? Ooh. Any guesses? Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be someone uh, un- that you wouldn't guess. Correct. So I'm say so, like Harvey Elliott or someone. Joe, I got nothing, Taylor. I got Joe, nothing. W- would it help if I told you that he doesn't play for Liverpool? Ah, uh, Vutfeis. <laughs> uh, his two goals, own goals uh, for Leicester, <laughs> oh, are there Liverpool's is. leading goal scorer since play is. resumed after the World <laughs> Cup. Two for Vutfeis, one for Virgil van Dijk, one for Mohamed Salah, one for Bayacic, and one for Oxlade Chamberlain. So, plenty of problems for Liverpool uh, that maybe won't be sorted out until the summer, if and when there are new additions. It's a strange position to have Pep Guardiola seeming like he's not too happy at Man City. Man City not too happy with their present situation with the Premier League. Jurgen Klopp probably a little bit frustrated with FSG at Liverpool. So who knows what the future holds. What we do know... Oh, go ahead, Graham. I was just going to say, does Voot face get a trophy if that stays until the end of the season? That he's Liverpool's top scorer for 2023? We will give him one. The Total Soccer Show will give him (laughs) that that honour, that trophy he deserves. Uh, We will also give Keylor Navas a trophy because Keylor Navas is just the best. Uh, 1-0 win for Forrest. It sees uh, sees, uh, Jesse Marsh sacked for Leeds in a move, Joe, that I did not expect to happen at least this quickly. My original questions were for you about when... Like, what happens with Jesse Marsh? When will he go? Because they have United away, United at home, Everton away, Southampton at home. I thought he would get some of those games. Uh, He gets none of those games instead. And my assumption is basically that Leeds see Everton now with Sean Dyche. They've taken action. They've had this bounce. Maybe Leeds hoping for the same. Yeah, I mean, of course they are, right? They want to climb their way out of of the relegation battle. I I don't. Think this is a little bit of a silly decision from Leeds United. I, I think it's a bad decision. Leeds are flipping back and forth between identities and styles and don't really seem to have any clear long term vision. Like I, I really don't exactly know what this club is trying to do. They are a mid table team based off of expected goal differential right now. They're they're better than the results are showing them to be. And so the next manager, whoever it is, will get that bounce. I mean that that's the whole sort of farce about this about this uh, new coach bounce idea is, you know, bad teams fire their managers. Leeds United are a bad team by the table's uh, perspective, and they're a, a mid-table at best team by the underlying numbers perspective. They're going to bounce up a little bit no matter who's coaching them, right? Just by, by the sheer power of the numbers, they are going to start winning a couple of games here, and that new manager is going to get credit, and Marsh isn't, and that's, that's, that's life, right? That's how this game works. But they're mid-table by the expected goals, they have spent the 17th most on wages, I think the 16th most on, on transfer expenditures. Those numbers are coming from Teoto Football on, on Twitter. Like They're not spending a lot of money to really claw their way out. So they want another manager to work in the margins, just like Marsh was always going to have to do. 
and it's probably going to work out for them. Maybe they get relegated. I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen here, but I'm not really sure that they got better today by doing this. Graham, do you agree? Do you disagree? Like, where do you fall being a little bit further removed from this circle? Yeah. Um, so I watched this this game at the weekend, the Forest Leeds game. I watched it live on on TV, and it really did feel like a moment of reckoning had had arrived for for Jesse Marsh. So I am surprised that he has gone today. I thought he would get one or two more matches to 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 try and produce some results until until this weekend. And this is where I think there's been a change in the dynamic. Until this weekend, Marsh always had something to fall back on. So either it was injuries or the transfer window was about to open. Um, he kept on talking about how their performances were getting better. And I think there was an element of truth in that. And even in this game, I don't think Leeds played particularly Badly, they actually were the better team in the first 50 minutes until Forrest scored with their, their first opportunity. But I now look at that Leeds United squad and it is significantly stronger than it was at the start of the January window. And the teams around Leeds, as, as you referenced, Joe, um, are starting to, to pick up results. And I think those two things have been the main factors. Leeds ha- are probably better than the results are showing now. I get what you're saying, Joe, with transfer expenditure and, and, and wages, but when you bring in guys like Weston McKenney and, and Geronimo Ruter, who are, are, are I think are pretty statement signings for, for, for Leeds. I think it's Ger- can't- I think it's Jorginho, but I'm fully Geronimo. calling him Geronimo, Geronimo. from now on. That is 100% happening. Thank you, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> that, so what's happened there is Geronimo really yeah. play, is the goalkeeper for... <laughs> yeah. uh, and so Geronimo really, Geronimo Ruter, is, I've, I've kind of mixed those oh, two up. But no, yeah, what's Geronimo happened Ruter. there is that you've given him an incredible nickname that he will now be called forever. Geronimo Ruter, <laughs> congratulations. You've been named. Yeah, sure. So, so good old Geronimo, yeah. he's come in to, to, to Leeds United. The, the irony is that both of those players, McKenney and, and, and Ruter, come off the bench in this yeah. game as it feels like Marsh is just starting to integrate them and now he's not going to get the yeah. opportunity to do that, which is which is which is cruel, but that's a that's almost a year that Marsh has been in charge now. And what I would say in in defense of Leeds' decision is that the stuff that was being said at the start of that tenure, that those twelve months, eleven months, whatever it is, are kind of still true today, which is that Leeds have a problem translating possession hmm. and opportunities and Joe you you mentioned the expected goals there they've always had a, a, a they've always had a trouble translating that into goals and results and so maybe that is maybe that is harsh because I don't know how you can legislate for that if you're Jesse Marsh for players n- not performing you just yell shoot better suggests. you just yell shoot yeah, better yeah exactly that's what it is but Leeds need, I think Leeds felt like they needed something to break this cycle yeah. otherwise they're going down and this is the easiest way for them to do it, that it does I, I hear a lot of what you're saying there, Graham. The timing that you mentioned there, I think, is is the silliest part of all this, right? I tweeted this. Firing your manager right after you spend $40 million in the transfer window is is strange, right? That is objectively a strange thing. If, if you were this concerned about your position, if a game against Nottingham Forest where you weren't great, but you were probably a little bit better than Forest, granted you were having to climb back, and so you're probably getting more chances in that in that situation because of the game state, but if that's the straw that breaks you know, the camel's back in this case, then... I, I think you were probably always going to be in trouble if you were living result to result. And I know that's how the Premier League works. I know that's how leagues where you can get relegated work. But I mean, I just am sort of still surprised by the lack of longer or even medium term thinking. Like leagues are just thinking game to game at this point. And, and like I said, maybe it works out for them, maybe it doesn't. But the timing feels weird to me. And I, I don't really know how to say it any other way. Is it? 
changing it all for you, Joe, if there is an immediate permanent manager installed, if it's not Chris Armas for three games. But if it is, as I said in the intro, I think the betting odds have it as Bielsa the favorite to take back over. That might just be because people want that to happen, and it's tough to know who else could be in there. But if we did have it be Bielsa appointed, maybe not in time for this weekend, but very quickly, that to me indicates that they've been having conversations with somebody, they've been having conversations with that replacement manager, and then the decision is slightly more defensible. Whereas if it's sort of the Everton thing of they haven't really done a coaching search, they just knew it was time to sack the manager and then they'll figure it out, that is more of a head-scratcher because that doesn't seem particularly forward-thinking in my mind. Yeah, the first of those two options definitely makes you feel better if you're a Leeds fan, right? Because there are some (laughs) contingency plans in place. And I I would be surprised if Leeds didn't have some names already written down on a whiteboard in their office that Jesse Marsh isn't allowed to look at or whatever. I'd be surprised if they didn't already have some folks that they're interested in. Maybe it's Bielsa, maybe it's not, maybe it's Hassan Hutel. And and maybe they do sort of continue on with this very Red Bull style. And and it's not as much of a back-and-forth thing. And it, it is just a new voice in the locker room. And maybe a few shots start going in just because that's how this game works. I don't know what's next for Leeds, but I, I'm, I'm mostly curious about this, frankly, about what's next for Jesse Marsh, right? Is it going to be the U.S. job or not? Because that, that yes. really, for folks that are listening to this show, is probably most what they care about. It, it certainly seems like Marsh is in a much better position now. Maybe he wanted it, maybe he didn't. But either way, he is inching closer through really no act of his own to that U.S. job. I, yeah. I still don't love that don't really like that either. Graham's much more on board with that than I am, but I, I think things are trending in that direction, certainly after this morning. No inside information, just a hunch. That that job is his. I'll put my neck on the line this morning. Give, after that news that Marsh has been sacked by Leeds, he's going to be the next USMNT head coach, in my opinion. Well, thank goodness, because we're getting rid of one manager to bring in another one who plays a specific system that has lots of possession, but doesn't create many goal-scoring opportunities. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. I don't know how I feel about that. It was strange to me to see that a lot of the response to Marsh being sacked, uh, I've already used keeping your powder dry once, so I'm going to use it again, that like it seems like the reaction has been, no, I don't want him as USMNT manager, at least from what I've seen. I'm sure there are plenty of people who do, and I I hear you, Graham, that it does seem like now he is very much the odds-on favorite to get it. But the consensus of... The, the secret is out, give his team the ball, and they cannot create clear-cut opportunities is more or less the criticism that I heard of Burhalter with the U.S. that uh, I think managers figured out, give him the ball, and, and his team has to try to figure out how to play through your compact defense. They're not great at that. So maybe it's an opportunity for Jesse Marsh to evolve if he does get that position. I will just say I think there are some folks still who think it is a slam-dunk appointment, I, I don't know if no. I would go that far, given what happened at Leipzig and now with Leeds. I'm sad to see him go. I'm very mad at Weston McKinney that he couldn't change the fates of the entire club in 33 minutes on the pitch. Uh, hopefully he does more with his st- first start. <laughs> uh, I say that in jest because I will still enjoy watching Leeds. He's going to score against my United on Wednesday night. It's a guarantee. Uh, yeah. I, I think I think there will be points <laughs> dropped for Manchester United. Uh, I saw a lot of United fans very frustrated that it's going to be another club getting the new manager bounce, uh, and then United without Casemiro due to, due to his suspension. I would expect Leeds to get some points uh, in one of those games, especially it being a derby. Uh, but I think enough about Jesse Marsh, enough about Leeds. Very briefly, just wanted to say uh, credit to Keylor Navas for doing exactly what we thought he would do, Graham. Yes, Killer Navas being in the same team as as John Joe Shelby uh, is still kind of bending my mind. 
a little bit. I mean, I can only imagine that Keylor Navas is 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 ticking that one off his career, you know, resume. Played with Lionel Messi, played for Real Madrid, won Champions League, played with John Joe Shelby at the City Ground. Yep. Tick that one off. <laughs> but he was he was very good in in this game. He he could be a season changing signing for Nottingham Forest. So there were two or three classic Keylor saves in this match, and it just seemed like. His presence emboldened the players in, yeah. in in front of him. Like they were like Scott McKenna is a Scotland international. I'm not the biggest Scott McKenna fan. He he probably had the best game I've ever seen him have in 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 this match. It re- it never really felt like Leeds were going to score even when they had lots of the ball in the final third. And I think that's just down to that that presence of of Keylor Navis. And he has a very different character to Dean Henderson. And I've never been a big fan of Jordan Pickford because of how chaotic he is. And I can imagine as a defender, having that presence behind you is not very settling. And I've always thought that about that with uh, Dean Henderson as well. Keylor Navis is a very different sort of presence. He just kind of makes the saves and gets on with it. And so the fact that Nottingham Forest instantly looked like a stronger defensive unit isn't surprising to me. I don't mean don't mean to be disrespectful because actually I really like Nottingham Forest and I've said I've said that since the start of this season. I hope they stay up, but he's clearly too good for that sort of level. Um, but that is great news for Forest because they've got him until the end of the season. I think he could make a big difference. I do feel bad for Dean Henderson, who left Manchester United to try to get minutes because there was a goalkeeper in place who Madrid wanted and then didn't want and was now playing for the club that Dean Henderson was playing for. He goes to Nottingham Forest, where there is now a keeper who Madrid wanted and then didn't want, and that keeper is now looking quite good. So we'll see what happens with Dean Henderson. Credit to Nottingham Forest for the win. Commiserations to Leeds and Jesse Marsh. Uh, One more break, and then we will talk about some other games that happened uh, this weekend around the continent and around the globe. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back. Let's go to Serie A. We're not going to spend too much time on Criminense unless, Graham, you had like 10 minutes you wanted to talk about what's going wrong for them, why they haven't yet won a game. Yeah, we'll keep it for the Patreon, though. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Then instead, let's talk about Inter. That's the sales uh, pitch right there. That is the sales <laughs> yeah, pitch. That's, that's the content people want to pay for. Yeah, it is. It might give be, that away for free. It might be for us to just uh, speculate wildly on what it will take for them to get a win. We can throw some ideas on the board. Uh, again, let's get Zlatan Ibrahimovic on that whiteboard. Uh, it worked for Sunderland, sort of. Why not have it go uh, for Cremonense as well? <laughs> instead, Graham, let's talk about the Milan derby. Inter with a 1-0 win. Uh, Inter looking good. Milan looking not quite as good. Yeah, so thumbs up for Inter and thumbs down for AC Milan. Uh, For Inter, it was a dominant performance, particularly in the first half when it felt like AC Milan just couldn't get out from their own half. Uh, Skriniar and Barella, they had more touches of the ball than anyone else. Barella was all over the place in in, in a good way. Um, And even on the rare occasion that Milan were able to get forward, Barella was just getting back and helping out and mopping things up. Chalanoglu saw plenty of the ball as well. And the game plan for Macy Milan, which I'll come on to in a second, was just very flawed. And Inter have players that were able to expose that. They, They were up against a low defensive block that Milan were using. And... Players like Cholinoglu with his his set piece ability and the fact that he can hit a, a shot a good shot from outside the box and Barella and the way that he nips into space and really knits things together, it just was a very ineffective game plan from from AC Milan and Inter are actually building some decent momentum at the moment. So they've, I think they've won every match apart from one drawn one defeat since the World Cup break. They're up to second place, and yes, Napoli are often in the distance, but it kind of feels like Inzaghi is finding the right midfield and attack to to move this team forward. You, we can't say the same thing about AC Milan at, at, at the moment. Um, so thumbs down to their recent form continuing with this dismal, dismal performance. 36 per, uh, 36% possession, excuse me, four total shots, none of them on target. And those numbers just kind of sum up how it, how bad they were over the 90 minutes. They got what they deserved. And it wasn't even as if Milan were solid on the defensive side of the ball. And that has actually been one of their, their biggest deteriorations over the last few weeks. They're just so open and vulnerable at the back. So Pioli, he shifted into this back three. You could understand if the game plan was to stay compact and really kind of stop the rot with AC Milan looking so open in recent matches. But he did that and they still looked fairly open in, in this game and none of his big decisions worked. Rafael Leao is, is on the bench, starts on the bench and then comes on in the second half, gives them a little bit of an outlet, actually creates an opportunity that AC Milan could have scored an equaliser from if Giroud's first touch had been a little bit better. But to be honest, that wouldn't have been a reflection of the match as a whole because Inter were the better team and they deserve to get the three points. I did not know how bad things had gotten for Milan, but basically since play resumed in Serie A, they've they won their opener against Salernitana, then it's a draw with Roma, a loss to Torino, a draw with Lecce, a 3-0 loss to Milan in the Supercoppa, a 4-0 loss to Lazio, 5-2 to Sassuolo, now 1-0 to Inter. 
Uh, I'm going to assume some things are going to change there. So maybe it's Pioli to Leeds and then Jesse Marsh to AC Milan. He'll start Rafael Leal every single game. Life will be fine. Uh, Joe, even if that doesn't happen, there are still plenty of reasons to care about, care about Serie A. And I think we should go ahead and give ourselves credit, even though I wasn't there for it, because we said nice <laughs> things about Napoli. They continued to win. Basically, they got the TSS, manage, uh, not manager bump, but just the TSS bump in general. Correct, correct. A yep. thumbs up to Napoli for making us look smart. I mean, we have to give thumbs up to stuff that makes us look smart. I think that I think we absolutely have to do that. By winning, of after course, we said nice things about them, Taylor, very well said on your part there. Uh, Kavaradana gets the opener in this match from the spot. Osimen gets the second and third goals in a 3-0 win over Spezia. So not only did they make us look smart, but they did it by having their two best players score, both two best players both score goals. And uh, we talked plenty about Kavaradana and Osimen on that episode of The Big Thing. Go back. It was published on Friday of last week and listen to it because it all still applies very much. I do want to give one thumbs down in this game for something I've just never seen before. So maybe it should be a thumbs up. I don't know if either of you guys saw this, but uh, thumbs down to Arcadius Rexa in this game, playing wing back for Spezia, I believe left wing back in this match. The second half's about to start. It's still locked at nil-nil. Spezia are in this thing. They have a chance against the, really, the title winners in Serie A right now in Napoli, barring a major points reduction. And it's a long ball from Napoli. They have the kickoff. They play it long into Spezia's own box. The ball bounces, and then, uh, and then Rexa sort of puts his arm out, and it just falls right on top of his arm. And it's a handball, like 12 seconds into the second half after two or three passes from Napoli. It is – I've never seen anything like this before. I don't know why the arm is outstretched. I really don't know what's happening there and how this was ever allowed to happen in the first place. But Napoli get the penalty. Cavaradana scores it, and it's 1-0, and then it's about to be 3-0 by the, uh, by the end of this match. So just a bizarre – set of circumstances from Spezia in that moment, but Napoli really do keep on chugging. It feels like like it, things are going too well for Napoli, and that leads me to think we're going to talk about the Champions League later on today uh, for a different episode. I, I, I do feel like Frankfurt are going to get points against Napoli out of nowhere. <laughs> Just something has to happen. Something has to go wrong to cause a little bit of drama. Uh, but Graham, Joe doesn't quite know what was happening with that handball decision. Can you explain what was happening to me with Real Madrid or what is happening with Real Madrid? Because Kareem Benzema isn't scoring, Real Madrid <laughs> losing to Mallorca. Things are strange. Yeah, so quite quite similar to the Liverpool situation. No, I don't have a a, a huge uh, or, or a particularly detailed explanation of of what is going on with Real Madrid right now. Barcelona are starting to look very distant at the top of the, the La Liga table. I think it's eight points now. Jo- it was five Joe's points when this match club, was over. Barcelona. Thank Correct. you very much. Joe's yeah, boyhood Joe, club. Joe, mm-hmm. Joe's, Joe's uh, boyhood club. Yep. Yeah, Barcelona is a socio. But yeah, this was uh, this was Real Madrid's second defeat in in the league since the restart. So they lost one 0 to Real Mallorca at the weekend. That's the game we're talking about here, and that's the third time that they have dropped points in their last five games. And and it just feels like Ancelotti is struggling for answers. Real Madrid have looked pretty toothless since the restart, and 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 this match was probably the worst so far in that respect. So they had just one shot on target, which was a penalty, which they missed. And considering so, Karim Benzema was missing for this match and that's a big factor in why they're not able to score but they still have a lot of attacking talent Real Madrid and that is pretty worrying for Real Madrid just how dependent they are on him not just for goals but to play through and build their attack around and it really kind of feels like 
Ancelotti's had issues with the midfield and he's taken Kroos and Modric out of the team and Danny Ceballos, remember him, he's back on the scene and it looks like he's going to get a new contract at Real Madrid and he's actually been pretty good these past few weeks but then Modric is back into the team for this game but there's a disconnect between the midfield and the attack because Karim Benzema's not there to, to link everything up and they just don't have a deputy or someone who can come in and do what he, he does and they don't have a plan B either so there is a growing sense that there was always an idea that Ancelotti might retire at the end of the season, even if this was a successful season for Real Madrid. But that idea is really starting to gather momentum in, in the Spanish press that Ancelotti will be out at the end of the season or maybe even before the end of the season if this continues because Real Madrid not playing well. And in the past, they've been able to not play well and get results. But when they don't have Kareem the Dream there to score the goals, that isn't happening at the moment. Oh, Kareem the Dream. What could have been? What could have been? Joe, I'm assuming you are feeling slightly cocky uh, given Barcelona's present position at at the top of the table. You've been singing their praises for a long while this season. It seems like it's coming good now. Yeah, should we take our eight minutes of silence to mourn the eight-point gap between Real Madrid and Barcelona now, or do we want to do that at the end? Uh, We'll do it at the end. We'll do it at the end. Okay, we'll do it at the end. That sounds good to me. Um, Yeah, Barcelona are really good. I've said they've been better than Madrid for a while now. It's becoming more and more clear that that's true. Not that things can't still change. Soccer is it's a weird game like that. But I've been incredibly impressed by what it's, Barcelona have done. Go ahead, Taylor. Yeah. I, I believe I saw a stat that uh, Barca have never conceded the title when they are eight points or more clear, and Real Madrid have never won the title by making up eight points or more. So it does feel like it would be a historical uh, turnaround for Real Madrid and a historical falloff for Barcelona for something like that to happen. Yeah, this Barcelona team also has Eric Garcia and also maybe plays yeah, got Marcos Edmund, Alonso at center back and also was trying to buy Julian uh, Araujo for literally no reason from the LA Galaxy. So, I mean, all of my love for Barcelona and what they do on the field is is true and is real. I, I love watching this team. I think they are very, very good. I said they're the best team in Europe. I, I think that's still true at this point as we've seen some of the Premier League teams fall through, I'm pumped that with this title gap, they can now focus on the the most important competition, the Europa League. Really, really stoked for them on that front. But at the same time, Graham, you said it well, there is that bit of chaos there. Like, I mean, there is, I don't think they're a particularly well-run club. I think they make a lot of really terrible decisions. They built this team, or it's been built, or just Pedro and Gavi happened to exist. I'm not really sure all of the different factors that have come to make this team so good. But, I mean, it can crumble very, very quickly. And Barcelona are a club that feel capable to me of just, like, ripping the rug out from under themselves for literally no reason at all. But all that to say, yeah, that I, I'm liking my victory lap. It's fun. Barcelona are good. Watch them. Don't watch Real Madrid. I know, I know you joke, Joe, about the, the Europa League, but I, I'm going to find that tie really interesting. I think that's going to be a, a bit of a yardstick for, for, for Barcelona. Because, yes, okay, they're eight points clear. Yes, they're easily a better team than Real Madrid right now. But I think a large factor in that eight-point gap is how bad Real Madrid have been as much as, as, as how good Barcelona have been. And Manchester United at this point, as we've discussed plenty in recent weeks, a coherent team yeah. right now under Ayrton Hag, which I know is a novelty given the, the last 10 years for that club. So I, 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 if Barcelona plow through Manchester United and just knock them out of the way in, in, in the Europa League, then that's at the point where I might start to change my opinion and go, okay, this is this is a serious team. <laughs> I just cast my mind back to the Champions League group stage where they didn't come out of, a, 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 of, of that group. I know it's a difficult group, but nonetheless, they probably should 
finish ahead of Inter with the, the individual quality that they have. They don't. And so I don't have the evidence, given that La Liga and Real Madrid hasn't been particularly high quality in the time since the Champions League group stage to, to make an assessment that they are a lot better. So that game against Manchester United, is, is as I say, I'm going to use that as a yardstick to see how far they've come. I hate that that's like a reasonable thing to do. I absolutely hate that. A Europa League round of 32 <laughs> tie and Graham is making some good points about how that's actually going to be a fun matchup that actually does tell us a lot of things. I don't... I don't want to live in this this particular soccer reality anymore. I just can't do it. Uh, Joe, well, hopefully this will make you feel better. Uh, I finished watching stuff and making notes very, very late at night, exemplified by one of my final notes for this show being, Joe, if you love Barcelona so much, why don't you marry one of their financial levers? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're welcome. Can you're we welcome make that happen that. or no? No. Okay, no I'm yeah, sure there's cool. a way. I'm no, sure there's fine. a way. I didn't want to anyway. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, I was very excited about that joke, apparently, but I'm much more excited about LJ3 via Real 1. It's been 1,700 minutes of not winning for LJ, but they've finally done it. A hat trick from uh, Per Mia, uh, including two penalties. Uh, the loss shores up fourth place for Atletico Madrid, now four ahead of Villarreal and Rabatis. Rabatis also lost this weekend. Uh, I don't have much else to say about this one other than that, in honor of LJ winning for the first time this season, we're going to play us out with their entrance which I heard while watching the extended highlights of this one, had to go find, I'm very into. So, uh, Joe, I think you're editing. I'll be sending you that one to include as the outro music (laughs) on this episode. But thumbs up to Elche for that win. Uh, Joe, one last one. I'm going to say thumbs down to Seattle for their performance at the Club World Cup. Yeah, thumbs down at uh, for Seattle for this whole thing. So they win the Champions League last year for CONCACAF. They beat Pumas. They get to the Club World Cup for the first time ever. Nobody can really figure out if that means something or means absolutely nothing. Then they lose to Al-Ali, uh, one of the biggest clubs in Africa, really the, the club to beat from Egypt. It was a, it was a competitive game, uh, two teams at, at different levels and in different points of their seasons. But just genuinely, I, I do have a thumbs down to not getting to watch Seattle play Real Madrid this mm-hmm. week because that, that was what was waiting for them. And that could have been a fun exercise that also meant nothing, but, but that was legitimately entertaining to see you know, what that matchup would look like. We're going to have to wait at least another year to see something like that. It's probably going to be longer. But yeah, just just wasn't Seattle's day. Neither team created much of anything in that match. I will say, thumbs up to Seattle getting healthy again before the season starts. Joao Paulo comes off the bench in the second half of this match. There probably weren't enough subs from Ryan Schmetzer. But Paulo was, was one of them, and he looked pretty good. It seems like he's getting back to full fitness after that knee injury that happened in the, the CCL final. So it's sort of a, almost a full circle moment for him. Good to see him back in action, and then Seattle making some tactical tweaks as well. Looks like we're going to start to see them have a little more fluidity in their possession play, shifting from back four to a back three at times. Brian Schmetzer, uh, I asked him about tactical tweaks on a, on a press conference last week, the week before, and he mentioned, yeah, you know, we're, we're trying to do some different stuff. He's talked about it to a couple of other folks as well. It seems like that in-possession shift is something that we should be keeping our eyes on from Seattle this year. Uh, and so that's my final thumbs up in a very nerdy yeah. tactical way for this episode. <laughs> I just I want to emphasize your point about Al Ali. They are not quite at the midpoint of their season, but they are in through 15 games, 11 wins, four draws. They have not lost. They've only conceded five goals all season for a plus 21 goal difference. They're well ahead of second place pyramids, uh, well ahead of their historical rivals, Zamalek, in the league. So it is Seattle in preseason coming up against a very strong Alali team. I'm not surprised that this went the way it did. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what happens with the rest of the Club World Cup, but uh, I am sad Seattle won't play Real Madrid, but 
also that could have been I, I didn't love the idea of Seattle being the get right game for Madrid put it that way <laughs> yeah. I think that's an easier fixture than Al Ali to be honest the way things are, are right now for Real Madrid yeah. Graham said it Graham said it there we go uh, that, that, we're going to end on that note of Graham saying that Al Ali are better than Real Madrid and I won't give him any time for a follow up or clarification Joe Lowry thank you uh, for for bringing the heat today bringing the love for Barcelona and the uh, tactical explanations as well yeah, I'm just stoked to to be headed down to the TSS Championship. Cool yep. name, good time. And Graham, uh, uh, we'll see you there, Joe. Graham, I, I like that we have stumbled upon the formula for winning uh, for any new club or for any club who have sacked a manager who have found themselves in bad run of form. Uh, it's a three-step process. Hire Sean Deitch, play Rafa Leao, and uh, have Benzema score, and you should be just fine. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that's what every club should be looking to do. I'd also add in eat, eat Popeyes yep. because I think most people should eat Popeyes most days. <laughs> and that's what I'm planning to do when this restaurant opens around the corner for me I, in the not so distant future. I don't know for sure, but I am 99% confident that Antonio Conte disagrees with you on that last one. <laughs> yeah, just Popeyes covered, slathered in ketchup. Yeah, that's like go. the anti-Antonio Conte meal. Perfect, perfect. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you so much, listeners. Thank you so much for uh, for sticking with us throughout this one. Go enjoy some Popeyes, and we'll talk to you again soon. La hinchada te aplaude con emoción Mucho elche, mucho elche Nunca pierdas la moral Mucho elche, mucho elche